0: Welcome to Fellow Fellow, a new podcast from Harvard Kennedy School's Technology and Public Purpose Project. I'm your host, Mark Lerner, and I'm a fellow at the TAP Project. In this podcast, I interview my fellow fellows about their research and perspectives on some of the most interesting challenges at the intersection of technology and society. Welcome to another episode of Fellow Fellow. We've got with us today, uh, Rebecca Williams, a fellow fellow of mine here at the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Rebecca is a data and technology policy analyst who wants to understand how government data management relates to power dynamics in society. Prior to joining TAP to research smart city risks, she's worked at the Sunlight Foundation, data.gov, Johns Hopkins University, and the White House. Her project is called Whose Streets Our Streets, which I absolutely love. And I've already spilled the beans a little bit in talking about that. Uh, She's here to research smart cities. But Rebecca, could you maybe kick us off by telling us what your project is about?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And thank you so much, Mark, for hosting this podcast. It's my pleasure to be on this episode with you.
0: Thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, so Whose Streets, Our Streets, maybe subtitled Tech Edition, uh, is obviously a call to uh, the popular protest chant that's been around for decades. Mm-hmm. My project at TAP is focused on smart city harms and risks and how to prevent them. In particular, who Streets, Our Streets is an interest in our public spaces, so streets in our community, and how tech is infiltrating some might say or influencing those spaces that were traditionally places for people to gather to talk about politics to protest to spend time with your friends and family what does this very public space that has had historical functions do or how does it change if there's a lot of technology deployed to it is Mm -hmm. sort of the underlying theme and I can do a pitch for I have a substack by the same uh, name that uh, my research assistant, Madeline Smith, shout out to Madeline, helps me curate every week with ongoing news, not just sort of project news on surveillance of public space. So surveillance has been a big theme in 2020 and now 2021. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of things in that area that we can talk about in this podcast, but this the scope of the um, newsletter is just surveillance related to something that might happen in your public square Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: like everything related to that, the market forces, the policy forces, and what's going on in your city.
0: Right. There are so many questions that I want to jump into, but I would love to hear a little bit about how we have gotten to this point in our history. Where are we right now when it comes to talking about smart cities uh, for those that you know have not been following it along uh, as as you have, and and how did we get to this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So smart city, as a buzzword, has been around for at least twenty years. Historically, it was more an extension of the telecom industry wanting to sell more like connected network tech to cities that they were already selling. So like the Cisco's of the world were were early on sort of selling this term. As everyone's aware, there's smart everything. We have smart watches and smartphones and smart refrigerators.
0: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the smart
1: city concept is just sort of scaling that, supposedly. I see. As technology continues to get cheaper and easier to deploy, smart city has taken on to mean like even more niche technologies. There's a whole like suite that you can think about. But basically anything that's in the urban environment, so like a a street light or a sidewalk tile, or a bridge, or anything like that, that you might trick out with something that can either sync up to the internet, or has a camera, or has a microphone, is is a smart city component in theory.
0: Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about smart cities, you know, you just listed off a, a short list, but, you know, I immediately think about the New York kiosks that have a bunch of different city resources loaded onto these sort of touchscreen kiosks. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. There's actually, there's, um, there's two on my block now.
0: That's amazing. So, so when I think of a smart city, I think of like that sort of futuristic element, but in reality, a smart city can have much more basic types of technology. So I guess what defines a smart city as opposed to just a city that has some technology built into it.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll continue this line of inquiry, but we should stop saying smart city at some point. Um it, it's important to frame the project as sort of this is what is being investigated, which is a lot of different types of technologies, but I think sort of restating the the phrase gives it like more credence and there's been a there's actually been a, a couple of articles out recently that's like the term is dead and I fully support that sentiment, but just to like follow this thought further. so that project is called link NYC. The original idea came from the city, which we can compare that or contrast it to maybe a sidewalk lab situation in Toronto mm-hmm. where maybe that idea came from Google and was presented to the city. but the the link NYC concept was about what do we do with all these phone booths in New York City? How can we furbish them in like a high-tech way? And actually, the the contractor for that has uh, Google subsidiary involved, but it's like many contractors.
0: I see. So it's like,
1: that's interesting, too. Yeah. But that was like an earlier, that definitely falls under the umbrella of like tricking out the city with technology. But Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of smart city technology falls under the Department of Transportation's purview. Often, like sometimes it's public works. Interesting. Sometimes it's um, the innovation office. Sometimes it's the technology office. It like depends. But there's a lot of transportation tech. And that's been going on even longer than sort of like the smart city phrase. Like transportation analysts will tell you we've had like sensors on traffic lights for 40 years. Right. Like why is it it all of a sudden a problem?
0: Um, I see. Yeah. And just to be sure I'm using the right words, if we shouldn't be calling it a smart city, what should we be calling it?
1: Oh. <laughs> well, I think I think we've come to a point where we should start talking about individual data collections. So not even like a piece of technology is where I'm at basically in the research. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that conversation needs to be about, you. you need to have different risk analyses for data that can re-identify people and data that cannot. And there's a lot of great research that is being done in that space now. But yeah, I think much like there's discussion about sort of like, do we regulate facial recognition technology or do we regulate all biometrics data collection? I fall Mm -hmm. in the latter camp because I think to the point of sort of getting ahead of different technologies, you really should be thinking about what's being collected. And that gets a little bit closer to mm-hmm. the harm or risk analyses that I do too. So I'm interested right. in all the names. I appreciate the smart city keyword lookup right. for the research, sure. <laughs> like the phrase. But smart city, uh, you can't, a city is not a watch. You're not gonna make the whole thing.
0: Right. Attached
1: and to the internet.
0: Right, there's a an interesting parallel here and, and, and juxtaposition with how are we actually looking at things. So the parallel that I think of with how we looked at smart equipment, smart watches, smart phones was at first it was very convenient, right? There was a lot of uh, utility that we received from these technologies. And then later on came the much broader conversations about how these could be surveillance tools, how we're giving up a lot of our data to companies and and organizations that we may not trust. And in a way, I wonder if we've seen that same arc with how we've treated the convenience and the surveillance or the convenience and the data uh, when it comes to the technology deployed to cities. Is that something that you've seen as you've been doing your research?
1: Mm, less so so you brought up the link nyc example and that was something where a community member would be getting a direct service from whatever's being deployed and you could make that same analogy to some of the the traffic sensors that i mentioned Mm
0: -hmm. if
1: the traffic sensors are really reducing traffic
0: which is a question
1: which is a question and 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 some of that might just be like, you need more than a sensor to reduce traffic. You Mm -hmm. need all sorts of things, right? Like you need budget to to build different Mm -hmm. infrastructure. You might need congestion pricing. You might need all these things other than just Mm -hmm. data collection to solve a problem. So I think that's actually a good way to put it is cities and vendors have been through this cycle a few times. Like we just saw I mentioned Cisco earlier. Mm-hmm. Cisco had an announcement last year, like we're getting out of the smart city business. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> they basically alluded to like it's not financially viable, especially in a time of COVID with less city budgets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense for them. Mm-hmm. And then on the, the city end, cities are looking for solutions to problems. Oh my goodness, traffic, LA. <laughs> their biggest problem is traffic. It's all they want to solve. Mm. So if you have partners and vendors that are like, I know how to solve it, more data collection, that sounds good. They want they want a solution to the problem. But then I think they're finding, not only might you have these ethical or privacy concerns attached with it, but also is it solving the problem to begin with? Mm-hmm. Or is it is, is it making my my vendor business money? Like these are still open questions. Like, does it even work? <laughs> so the convenience isn't totally there. Whereas maybe with the, some of the phone apps, you could argue, is
0: there. Right. When, when we think about then why it is that cities are spending so much time and so much money on these technologies, on these types of projects, what reasons have you found? What have the incentives been for them to actually start doing this mess? And we'll focus on the data collection piece, because it seems like that's really what you're driving at in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's been driving their desire to do so?
1: Yeah, I think, um, as mentioned, they have problems that they want solutions to. And by the way, like you can't manage something if you can't measure it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of solutions that can be had from like just sort of understanding the problem better. So I do want to like differentiate between um, sort of people that mean well and then people that like do not mean well. I think both exist in this space and others.
0: I see. So so to clarify, I suppose you're not saying you are totally against cities collecting data. That's right. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For Yeah. Some of my background you mentioned in the bio, I have like this, this history of like working with governments on data management generally. Mm-hmm. So like, I understand the power of data and collecting it and how helpful it can be. I can even remember I was working with a city when I was working at Johns Hopkins on the Bloomberg What Works Cities project. And they talked about, they switched vendors for pothole data collection. So something a little more benign, like not re-identifiable mm-hmm. probably. But the new vendor, it wasn't even like the new vendor was was like a, somehow more spectacular or genius or something. It was just a more modern stack with standardized data collection. And all of a sudden they could compare and contrast and get the re-pavers out there more quickly. <laughs> like it was just a better data set. Right. Whereas in the past they had people just sort of like do it ad hoc or it wasn't standardized when it was entered just sort of like collecting something really cleanly can like make deployment of services or solutions a lot more efficient. So
0: Right. And so that's where a city might want to start collecting more information. And then at some point they cross the line between data that cannot re-identify someone and data that can. And you're saying that that's really where the conversation needs to be on on that boundary.
1: Yeah, I think that that boundary is actively being crossed right now and like, You're seeing pushback from communities on it, Mm. Um, not just with facial recognition, which I think is a a big one, but like part of the interest of this project for me is sort of extending that conversation of governments passively collecting information on you Mm -hmm. without your information, even if they have good intents, which, again, I'm not saying they they all do. Some of the intents are good. Some of them are not. But you were never asked.
0: Right and i remember you saying earlier uh, outside of the podcast in an earlier conversation about how you had been collecting or categorizing the different kinds of smart city harms yes can you can you talk a little bit about what is the actual harm that that someone like me who you know as we're talking through this i'm thinking okay i just generally don't want someone to have my data that i don't allow them to but it might be difficult for me to actually name, here the things, here the reasons why I don't want it. Besides, it just kind of feels like an intrusion of my privacy, maybe. So what have you been finding with that categorization?
1: Yeah. So I put out a blog post in the fall that had some rough ideas and I had a call for feedback. And thank you so much to every single person that like replied to that post that helped fill in some of the gaps. I think smart city technology, there's just so many layers to it. It's why it's interesting, but there's also so many ways to go with it. So it has been challenging to come up with like really high level buckets and then commit to certain ones. But I have some, I have five buckets, five (laughs) harms. The current five buckets. um, The first is technocratic takeover of democracy. So this is a big one for like urban planning folks historically, like urban studies, but it gets to the point we were just talking about like if, if I just sort of decide what the community wants because I'm secretly surveilling them, that's very different than them voting on something. And so like you have this erosion of why aren't you asking people? And then also the way you collect is based on your viewpoints. But the more sort of like collection you do without actually talking to people, the, the long tail argument is that erodes democracy. So that's harm one. <laughs> All right. Harm two, I'm describing as an exploitation of personal data. So, this is a lot of the privacy theme stuff, but really it's just sort mm. of taking advantage. There's a lot of different, sort of second order, but like closely coupled harms that come with privacy, um, actual and potential. But it's not just sort of like a human right to privacy, but if you're worried that you'll be filmed protesting, maybe then you don't protest (laughs) Mm -hmm. or if the city's collecting all this information on you and they have a breach, then you have all these identity security concerns. There's this exploitation. People Mm -hmm. are are taking data from you without this conversation and it could affect your behavior in all these ways. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So the third big bucket in my harms list is discrimination broadly so this can go either way. So you can imagine unequal surveillance to certain communities, or the Link NYC actually is, is a great example. Um, unequal deployment of services.
0: Oh, interesting. Either
1: you're getting digital goods or you're not, and and how does mm-hmm. that like work out?
0: Mm-hmm. And so in, in this particular vein, you're thinking of how data is being collected or benefits are being deployed and how is that being distributed is that is that a guaranteed harm of this technology or is this sort of like something that occurs because of how it ends up getting implemented
1: i guess technically it's it's where it's implemented well i don't know with, with some of the re-identifying data like how you form that collection or we know how facial recognition technology doesn't identify equitably right now. So it could be built in, but certainly Mm -hmm. is about how you deploy it as well. I think the answer is both.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. But it's also, this isn't like a speculative harm. Like this is mappable. Like this is very, very easy to see. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just to finish with the, the list of harms. The fourth big harm is privatization. So this is like a broader theme maybe in society, but when we're talking about public space it becomes a big deal. This was like a major concern in the the Sidewalk Labs case in Toronto.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask.
1: Yeah. And there's there's all these implications of like private control of traditionally public held services. I mean protest is one, like they can they can like kick you out of a privately owned space i don't know if like listeners remember uh, occupy wall street was on privately owned land but the the owner was like this is fine and allowed it but easily could have not but not just sort of like real estate ownership but like that the data collection so like right what's going on there you have different rights available if the government is collecting your data one of which is just public records request to see how that data is being requested you can't FOIA private actors. Um,
0: Right. That's fascinating. Having this whole ecosystem of who is actually doing the collection, who's actually doing the storing and the processing. And and honestly, also just the representation and power over a public entity, not just in the FOIA sense, but, uh, you know, which is incredibly important in its own right. But the fact that government is run by elected leaders and private companies are not.
1: Absolutely. Right. You can't vote out the Google contractor that's been there forever.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So um, the very, the very last harm is tech solutionism. So obviously that's a, a, a phrase that a lot of people have brought up, but it didn't fit squarely in some of um, the other harms I had, mm-hmm. but just the idea that technology leads to more technology and just maybe speaks to, to some of the, the less admirable choices that cities have made to purchase some of this technology in the past without being sure that it really would solve the problem and spending all these tax dollars I see. on something like that. But um, I've talked to government employees and they've mentioned some of the excitement over 5G and how that leads yeah. to more um, smart city technology excitement. Right. So it's just like more and more and more technology. And is it even working? Is there more and more risk with that? So you're just right. like layering on risk unnecessarily. People talk about right-sizing tech. Like use a mm-hmm. Google form instead of the election app or whatever. But even just sort of non-technical solutions, like are those passed up? Could you have spent that money better?
0: Right. And, and I wonder if there's also an element here of because of the excitement around All of these, and to use the now retired term smart city technologies, (laughs) uh, we end up focusing only on the problems that these technologies can solve as opposed to the other problems that are available that don't necessarily need smart cities technology to resolve, but that aren't as uh, in vogue, as it were. Yeah. There's so much more to get to, and especially after having heard about all the different harms, it immediately brings to mind a a larger conversation about the power dynamics of this all, which I wanna get to after we take a quick break. So we're gonna do that right now, and we will continue the conversation in just a bit. follow rebecca's work on her website rebeccawilliams.us that's rebeccawilliams.us you can also find her on twitter where her handle is at internet rebecca back with our conversation with Rebecca Williams, fellow fellow of mine and researcher of Whose Streets, Our Streets, Tech Edition. Rebecca, we just wrapped up a really interesting conversation on the list of harms that you've been collecting that smart city technology, that the collection of data by cities uh, is having on our society. And that immediately brings to mind this sort of larger theme of technology and power. And how, as we build out more technology, as data becomes more and more centralized, data collection, data, um, the actual storage of the data, who, who has it, who owns it, who uses it, that we really are seeing a transfer of power in a way. And this is something that you've spoken about quite a bit with our fellowship cohort, and I know that you've thought about quite a lot. Uh, I guess maybe a, a place to start in this is just, how do we think about tech and the definition of tech in relation to the power it holds over our lives and the power that it can transfer from us to these larger bodies?
1: Yeah, I think it would do us a service to think about technology as broadly as possible. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a lot of sociologists say as much a lot of scientists. I think it would do us all a service as we form um new policies and not just policies norms around these types of things. What's like the broadest definition of tech it's it's tool, probably like something that we use to do something else. <laughs> it's like the Vegas. Uh, definition, But um, yeah, I, I think as we think about technology now, especially as we as a human race continue to generate it more quickly and more quickly, we have to think about what our tools do and the affordances that they present and make sure that those affordances don't take back the conversation about values and norms that we'd already worked so so long to create. I think there's like this bait and switch in sort of the conversation where we all had like some reasonable expectation of privacy in this way. And then all of a sudden, because this new tool has this new affordance, people are like, no, that's not the reasonable expectation anymore. Right. And that doesn't, it's like the the tail wagging the dog or something. It doesn't make sense. Tools are supposed to serve our values, not the other way around.
0: Right. There's this sort of cost that we have unknowingly paid over a long period of time where we have been chasing the convenience afforded by the tools, the technology, without being as conscious as possible uh, or maybe as conscious as we should have been about the costs that we were paying. Um, in, in many ways, so, sure, this service might be free, but it's collecting all this data about me. Um, and again, I come back to this idea of it being about data collection because of the framework that you set out earlier in the, in the conversation. Um, do you see the core distinction about how tech influences power to be the same distinction about the technology and, and data collection and data re
1: I think they're closely related. There, There's probably, it's probably a Venn diagram of sorts. I do think folks start focusing on the technology and not either the use or like data is closer to use than the technology. I'm talking very abstractly, but if you, if you want to talk about facial recognition or something like that, mm-hmm. certainly like your facial data is what's most important there and then how it's being used not the camera itself the camera is not a nuclear bomb right but it could be it could be used as such <laughs> like but it's not as inherently um by itself without the users without the data as dangerous it has like right. a different affordance to it
0: well i i think you know what you're pointing at is that there's a facial recognition schema includes a camera but a camera does not make facial recognition
1: yeah it's the it's the whole the whole recipe the data the use the tool yeah and I think if you focus too much on the tool you start missing the other things and then you're just always chasing it
0: and so when you think of use then I mean people are very happy to give up facial recognition when when it helps them unlock their phones Right. People use facial recognition as their as their passwords on their phones and forward-leaning organizations such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation are supportive of this, even at the same time as they are against the use of facial recognition technology in other avenues. Do you see that as being sort of more conversation about the use versus either the data or the technology or the tool?
1: Yeah, uh, so Mark was referring to essentially an op-ed, the position piece by the Electronic Frontier Foundation that stated its position as wanting to ban use of facial recognition technology in government, but wanting it to be strictly limited in cases of private use. And private use was sort of a coupling of sort of individual use to unlock your phone, as Mark mentioned, or... The private sector for innovation, et cetera. So, yeah, relating to your your direct question there, Mark, I think what's going on with policy right now and that piece is we're reestablishing our our norms of what is okay. So I imagine like a, an okay future in my view. I'm not even gonna say good or or ideal or bad, but I could imagine a future where it's pretty much the norm in many countries that you can use your biometrics for financial identification purposes or like individual access purposes like it's how i get into my house mm-hmm. it's how i pay for things at the store but that it's not okay that the government scans your face when you protest like that's inappropriate like we decide as a society either through like regs or like beyond regs, like you just would never do it. The same way we've decided that like you can't look into someone's window. Mm-hmm. You can have a phone booth, but you can't stalk people. Like like we'll understand that some of these things are okay and some of these things are not okay mm-hmm. through like a series of trial and error. And I think ESF and other digital advocacy orgs have a lot of folks at these places trying to come up with firm Principled positions about what those norms might look like, and we're going to see like more of those pieces mm-hmm. come out as we're figuring it out.
0: Now, you you've mentioned in in other conversations, uh, you had this quote which I really loved, which is, "Tech reorganizes the world, which reorganizes power." And when you're thinking of this sort of relation between the three. And especially in this context of coming up with new norms of how we operate, what are the sorts of things that we should be paying the most attention to uh, when it comes to who is, you know, where this power is being shifted and and how, what conversations we should be having about it?
1: Yeah. So in terms of technology as a tool and its affordances, like how does, what, what are these affordances? How do they reorganize the world? So I remember, like, for listeners that haven't heard the term affordance, I remember a friend of mine, Kathy Dang, first introduced this this term to me years ago. But she described, like, a hammer fits in your hand nicely and has, like, a, a dense end. So it has this inherent affordance for you to, like, hold it and hit things with it. But um, mm-hmm. in addition to technology having different affordances and changing the speed of things. I think it changes the definitions of what we're talking about, which makes it difficult to regulate, but also changes power dynamics. I think we're seeing this across technology policy issues. So if you think about Uber is not a taxi company, it's a technology company. Mm -hmm. If you think about, most things in the crypto world, including cryptocurrencies, they're just sort of working with a different language, a different set of dynamics. But they're reestablishing power. They're redefining. They're They're not working within our current frameworks. But I don't think our Our norms of our current frameworks have really changed that much. And there's There's a lot of positive that can be done with sort of like this disruption, to just sort of not not go. With the old frameworks which have all this inherent discrimination and,
0: mm-hmm. and problems
1: but there is a right. lot of harms that can be done too so it's just sort of they're running off of a different playbook by the nature of how powerful these tools can be
0: right yeah i mean that's a great point just because the the current actors are changing the frameworks to their benefit does not necessarily mean that the old frameworks were equitable or just in themselves, right?
1: That's
0: right. Uber is a very interesting example. There's obviously a large piece about data collection and data ownership. Um, there's a large piece about physical services and presence in the physical world. Uh, there's large pieces about labor and and about power over cities. We've seen them exert that power strongly across the world. Um, this is a, a core example of how, you know, how cities have evolved, right? And and the technology that enables a futuristic kind of city, which, you know, to harken back to how I would imagine a smart city uh, back at the start of this podcast episode. But at the same time, there's all of these issues that people have seen with Uber, um, again, such as labor, such as data collection, such as the power that it has over cities, um, but not all of that has to do with the technology. Some of it just has to do with the business decisions that they have been making. So right. how do you approach that difference? How do you approach the difference between, you know, how is is it that they are able to make those business decisions because their technology allows them to? Or is it, you know, a, a matter of uh, venture capital and massive investment as one of our other fellows is studying you know, where might that power actually come from?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of technology culture encourages some of these other things that aren't directly connected, just sort of the language and what's reinforced maybe in Silicon Valley or beyond about disruption and all these things. So I think it's important to talk about how these two things affect power the technology itself and then all the other things but i think there's a lot of cultural elements like they're laced together and thinking about the people is like really important like why did this company get all this VC money why did this get to spread why the personalities and sort of like the values are embedded in in both but I think Uber's a good example to some of the convenience topics you were bringing up early earlier too because it's sort of you can't argue against Uber's convenience factor. Right. Whereas maybe maybe you could argue against some of these like lit up sidewalks or whatever. Sure. Like like Uber has this net convenience factor and then even if you like look at like the history uh, and uh, it's also a good example of sort of it's not like taxi um organizations are inherently equitable. Like you look at the strikes that just happened for sure. in New York for, for like the pyramid scheme uh-huh. of, of medallion ownership. So it, d- it doesn't mean that taxis are inherently good and Uber's inherently bad as like a model, but Uber did sort of get away with it because they're like, no, no, we're doing an app. We're not doing this other sort of transportation service. And I think that design pattern is something that you could follow across a lot of different, ways that technology has not been regulated.
0: I see. So kind of presenting it as a shield, as it were, saying we're not this, we're that.
1: Right. So we don't fall under the definition of a thing to regulate. Mm -hmm. I think, too, like a smart city related Uber thing, the mobility data specification in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and that was an attempt of a government trying to take back some power from this private sector group that infiltrated the city and saying like, Oh, give us your, your data. At least you, we want to see how people are traveling in the city. The controversy there for folks not familiar was having government know all of your stop to stop data, which there's also been like articles about how this happens with, with taxi data, but just sort of having such personal information shared Between Uber and the government, and what would the government do with that, knowing exactly where you go all the time? Like they didn't think it through entirely. Mm -hmm. Is the long story short, or but also they didn't demand extra from Uber. They said just give us your exhaust data. Hate to be too much of a burden on you. Which (laughs) is just like export what you have. Um, and export what you have happens to be very like re-identifiable and risky. Wow.
0: So. To sort of zoom out a whole bunch here, you know, a lot of what we're talking about has focused on these themes of obviously technology uh, and technology as a tool that has a particular use or an affordance. We've talked about data that, you know, who's collecting the data, who owns the data, is, can this data re-identify people and the power that is or, or the value that is held in data that has read and fiability, which I don't know if that's a term, but I'll have invented it if it wasn't.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and in particular, at the center of all this is is norms, right? And the idea that as a society, we have been evolving our norms in bad ways, in some cases, and good ways in others. We've been allowing a lot of this stuff to happen because of convenience. We've been allowing a lot of this stuff to happen because of ignorance. Uh, but we're becoming more and more intelligent and and growing our norms. If you could install a new norm among the society around us based on your research to avoid the harms that you listed out before, what might that be?
1: Whoa. For all those harms?
0: Um. I mean, yeah. You know
1: yeah I'll, I'm giving I'll... you a
0: magic wand here, but you can you can say how how much power it's got.
1: I'll answer the question, but um I'll take a couple of sentences to get there i think I think you're right i I've, I've been talking a lot about norms and how you know some of those norms end up with policy or law or regulations like some of those get codified, but we're we're renorming a lot of society right now in a lot of different ways. Like you hear separate from sort of like the quote unquote big tech lash, there's cancel culture, there's there's calls to abolish the police, which is very like tied to some of the surveillance technology conversations, by the way. There's a lot of sort of like, what we're doing doesn't work, we should be doing something else. And I definitely am in the camp of, if we're in this sort of storming, phase for norms i very much encourage like all the options on the table including like just don't do this at all <laughs> like don't like maybe the full stop like you never get to see a face of a protester even if it's safe. somebody wants because mm-hmm. it's like like i think that is definitely that, a conversation to be had i see or maybe full stop like don't like you can collect traffic data as long as it can never penalize someone (laughs) like as long as long as not for speed or for like anything that could potentially be discriminatory I think is on the table as an option and I also like yeah just to broadly talk about sort of like this moment in time if you really want to reestablish norms like you have to be able to think about like full stop no's and again like not a no technology let's go back to the stone age because technology can be really not just convenience not just sort of like a consumer centered take but it can really like change lives save lives Mm -hmm. but yeah so i think if i had like one one norm uh my biggest concern is how it attaches to the police state in uh, america so i would try to stop some of that Mm -hmm. full stop and that would be just don't share that so Smart cities are interesting. Traffic is interesting. Knowing exactly where water is upticking for like flood plans is interesting. But mm-hmm. if you are accidentally sharing this with the police, that sounds like that's the wrong agency and you shouldn't be doing that. So that would be my first ask. Gotcha. But I, I'm working on a long list <laughs> Oh. as the, the final output of this project is some potential recommendations that cities are already doing and that cities could do.
0: Mm hmm. That's great. Well, I really look forward to seeing that list. Um, I want to be sure to give you a little bit of time right here at the end to, uh, you know, are there any final thoughts or anything that you want to leave the listeners with? Besides maybe this one new norm that now they can hold in their back pockets.
1: I I think I would just encourage listeners to think like one step ahead. So if if you're worried about police facial recognition technology, also like pay attention to all the stuff that's going on with Clearview AI or what I hope my project does with the the streetlight cameras. Mm-hmm. Just think about like a, the next step or source for something. There's a principle from uh, Indigenous peoples to think seven generations ahead. So really, just thinking about like what is like the natural what is it an outcome that could happen from this that might hurt people and make sure that we're we're leading with a, a do no harm stance and with a, a long view so that we can actually benefit from these things
0: mm-hmm. i think that's a great great perspective to be taking on all of these sorts of things rebecca it's been a phenomenal conversation thank you so much for coming on and sharing your research and your thoughts with me
1: absolutely thank you mark
0: Fellow Fellow is a podcast produced at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center as part of the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Music is by Zach Pfeiffer, artwork by Z. Wang. I'm your host, Mark Lerner. Join us next time as we talk to the other fellows about the problems they're tackling. Thanks for listening.